Okay. Uh, now, uh, this whole series, just to give you the schedule, next week uh, is Christmas Eve. It falls on a Sunday. So just remember, for us, nothing's going to change. Okay, we're going to meet at 1030 in the morning on Christmas Eve. And then the following week is New Year's Eve. Nothing changes. We're going to meet here at 1030 in the morning. Spend the rest of the day and night with your family. Please enjoy yourselves that way, okay? But we're not planning anything special the nights of December 24th or December 31st. It's nice to just unplug, yes? Boy, I tell you, these church events, they take a lot of energy and a lot of time. So you can spend that time, spend just as much time on your own family, okay? And, and I encourage you to do that. So uh, this whole idea is, is coming, I think, from what we're seeing in the culture around us. There's a lot of questions that are being asked about the Christian faith, the Christian message, and it happens at Easter more now than before. It happens at Christmas more now than before. It happens in church settings. People are sitting in church week after week having these kind of private internal dialogues and questions about their own faith. And oftentimes they don't have any answers to it. And they just sort of say, well, everybody in this bunch in this church seems to assume that all these things are true. How come nobody's asking a question? Are we all, you know... Uh, drinking Kool-Aid or something? Are we all deluded? Like uh, those of you from Guyana, you'll understand that's a tongue-in-cheek, a tongue-in-cheek reference there. Uh, but uh, in any case, uh, look, folks, if it's true, you should be able to ask it a question. You should be able to interrogate fiercely uh, spiritual truth or so-called spiritual truth. And folks, if it's not true, go home. Like, seriously, don't burn your time believing something that isn't true. Even the Apostle Paul said, he said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is useless. We're liars. We're false teachers because we're teaching this based on the premise that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So you've got to be convinced in your own mind of the things that you believe in. It's okay to ask those questions. So that's what this series is about. Uh, so today we're going to continue. Last week we looked at the whole subject of, well, can we trust these, these stories you know, that we read in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We talk about Christmas. You're only talking really about Matthew and Luke. Can we trust these things? And we came to the conclusion that really, if you go by the basic rules of evidence and history and all this stuff, the Gospels would be considered reliable eyewitness testimony of the events in question. They would be. Uh, they would stand up in a court of law. There's been many who have put them to the test in that way, and they would be, and you can review that message if you want. Now, the obvious question now comes to mind, and the question is, okay, you know, I can accept I can accept the circumstances of the Gospels. You know, I can accept that Jesus was born. I can accept that uh, Herod the Great was, uh, was in charge and who the emperor was and where it took place and all this stuff. I can accept all these things as reliable and this is what we read in Matthew and this is what we read in Luke. Fine, I can accept all this. But come on, it's the 21st century. Are you telling me that I'm expected in the 21st century to believe all of these miracles that took place. And of course, at Christmas time, 
the 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 main miracle that that is often uh, focused on is the virgin birth. You, and you know the person can a person can rightly ask that question, folks. You know what do we do with that content? If if the testimonies of the evangelists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are reliable, what about all these miracles? What are we going to do with this? Uh, maybe these people were you know exaggerating, or maybe the primitive minds, or. As I often joke, maybe they're smoking too much, you know, magic mushroom in the first century there from the bushes of, uh, of Galilee, and uh, you know, maybe there's something. Uh, we don't. This is not part of our experience. How can you say that you that this is reliable and that this is true? And that's a very valid question. Now, to help me answer it, I'd like Andre Slochevsky, if he would come up to the stage here. And you see Andre, uh, and this is his wife, Grace, uh, this relatively newlywed couple. How long have you been married? Andre, Grace, oh, they say at the same time. They say two years, all right? So now she's on the camera, and now he's over here, and we want to make sure that we can, we can see him, okay? And uh, before I let you explain the answer to this question, or partially at least, uh, you know, people see you uh, just, you know, running the little computer or whatever, running the little camera there. Some of you know that uh, you, uh, you were baptized in water earlier this year, I think it was, like February or something yeah. like that. But tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do for a job? What do you do for studies? Go ahead. Uh, so by profession, I'm a mathematician. Currently, I'm a PhD student in mathematics at McGill University. Um, my field of specialization is probability theory, so I deal with random processes, uh, how to modify them to achieve certain outcomes. And uh, ironically, it was my uh, worst grade in undergrad probability, but here I am. <laughs> okay, good. Now, um, um, there's a, you have a couple of unique things about you. Uh, one of them is that you speak extremely good Mandarin. So I'd like you to just greet the people, please, in that language and say something. Maybe there's some people who speak Mandarin here. Go ahead. Right, what he said. So I hope... <laughs> so he's actually won, like, international competitions or something in Mandarin or whatever champion and whatever it is. So you speak, if you go to a Chinese restaurant with them as a couple, it's quite funny. So he gets the privileges because he speaks the language, you know. Uh, okay, and also, I know you have some experience working for, for Microsoft or something. Can you explain? Yeah, so I used to work at Microsoft because my research, uh, outside of the physical sciences, its applications are mostly in finance and in AI. So I used to work at Microsoft in AI research. We developed uh, uh, AI that helped programmers write code on its own um, and uh, yeah but uh, I returned to do my PhD studies after that good okay good now I want you from your angle then and your field of study your field of training you've got some slides to show us to explain in a sense the answer to this question so you go ahead and you can work off of here I think and I'll just stand by the side and if, if I get lost I'll say excuse me Okay, it's great. Okay, well, thank you, Joe, for the opportunity. It's great to be here. So today I'm here to talk about about miracles, and uh, maybe we'll start with something 
Um, a little bit, a little bit mathy, but really quite simple. So imagine we have a, a die. So a six-sided die, we throw it, we get a five. Well, what was the odds of getting a five? It was one out of six, right? Okay, now suppose we repeat that and get five and a three. So for that event to occur, we needed one over, one over six for the five, one over six for the three, overall one over 36. And now we're just gonna keep rolling that die. So I'm gonna keep rolling, rolling, and I get some sequence, you see it on the screen, five, three, one, six, five, six, whatever. Um, well, what's the probability of getting that sequence? Well, every die roll is independent, one over six, you multiply it together and you get one in 470 billion. Quite small as a probability, you would say. Um, so does that mean it's a miracle? I think that everyone would agree that it's not a miracle. Now suppose I re repeat the experiment and I take the same die and I roll it 15 times, but this time I get a very special outcome. I get two, 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 repeated 15 times. Again, same probability, every two is just one out of six. So a one in 470 billion probability event, but already it feels more special. And I think that if I just did it right now on camera and I would roll a die 15 times to get the same number, there'd be a big debate, is this, what happened here? Um, so, okay, ra raise your hand if you think that was just luck. Maybe, some people would say that. Raise your hand if you think it's a, mere, a divine intervention. Maybe some people would think that. Um, I would probably be in a third camp where I'd say that the die is rigged. Um, because, <laughs> because it's far too low of a probability and it's not really the way that we see God do miracles in scripture. But that already starts, it gets us thinking, yeah, because so a low probability event by itself, not necessarily a miracle. Yeah, we see it with a random sequence of dice rolls. But if it's highly ordered, yeah, that's where the special thing comes in when it's all the same number. Then we feel it's, it's, it's special already. And, and why is that? And it's because order is rare and chaos is frequent. If you think of all the possible combinations of dice rolls, there are very few ways in which things can be ordered. So to get the same number in a row 15 times, there are only six ways, there are only six different numbers. But I can come up with billions and billions of boring combinations like the first one. And so order is rare. There are a few ways for things to be ordered and many ways for them to be disordered or chaotic. Yeah. So this is something that we see a lot in our everyday lives. Somehow order, which is very precious and rare, devolves into chaos. The very simple example you can take is, think of your kitchen. So you've cleaned your kitchen, your kitchen's very ordered, no mess, no nothing, very neat. Somehow, day after day, it just tends to get messier and messier and messier. And you wonder to yourself, well, well, why? Why doesn't it naturally get more and more neat and ordered? It doesn't never happens the other way around. And the answer, well, is at least from a probability perspective is that there's only one way for it to be ordered and neat. And there's a million different ways in which it could be mess over here or, or some dirt over there. And their way, that way it's not uh, in a state of disorder. In uh, the same way you can think about this is about the fact that it's easier to destroy something than it is to create something. In order to create something, you have to put the pieces together in a very precise configuration so that everything works together. But there are many ways in which you can make a mistake or it's very easy for someone to destroy it because only part of it needs to be destroyed for the whole thing to not work anymore. Um, for example, with our bodies, we have a lot of moving parts. We have trillions of cells. 
if one part of our body isn't right, then we feel ill. And it's only when all of our parts sort of are not ill, that's the one ordered state in which we feel healthy. So what does the Bible tell us about order? Well, the Bible instructs us to keep order. I just took uh, some examples from the Ten Commandments here. Uh, Thou shall not lie. This is an explicit instruction to order your words in a way to say the truth. Because there's only one truth, but there are many ways in which you could tell lies. Uh, take another example. Thou shall not kill. This is an instruction to keep order because there's only one way to create a human life and thousands of ways to take a life away. Some other examples would include not to commit adultery, not to covet the neighbors, whatever, or steal from the neighbor, because there are many things you could want to covet, many things you would want to steal, but there's only one way to stay ordered and not to do, not to do that, which is not to steal anything. And I think you can understand that if you violate any of these, um, well, okay, the latter ones are probably more obvious, but even if you start to tell lies, then you're creating chaos in your life and some disorder will, is bound to happen. So what does science tell us about this? Well, in science, uh, we have a universal law, which is that disorder is, in a closed system, is always increasing. Scientists call it entropy. So this is uh, what's known as the second law of thermodynamics, usually understood as the fact that heat flows from hot to cold. So you, if you touch a hot and a cold object together, you're never going to have the hot object getting hotter and the cold object getting colder. They sort of start mixing together, and it, it, it becomes a chaotic mix of hot and cold and sort of lukewarm. You never get more order. You never get more separation of hot on this side and cold on that side. Um, but there's a caveat, and this is how we as humans create order. You can create order by putting outside energy into the system. So let's go back to the kitchen example. Your kitchen gets messier and messier and messier sort of naturally. You can't even do anything about it. But one day you say, I'm going to take energy to go and clean it up. And that's outside energy. I take the time, I take my energy to go and restore order into my kitchen. And then it's going to go back to becoming messier and messier again. Think about the example of hot and cold. The, hot, the heat inside our house escapes into the cold winter. But we pay energy bills to keep our house heated. We keep the fridge plugged into an energy source so that it can separate the cold inside from the hot outside. Some other examples from everyday life. Uh, here I have the police. The police keeps order. We spend tons of energy, tons of money to keep things ordered. On an international scale, we, we spend enormous amounts of energy to keep things from devolving into armed conflict. Um, as our body, we eat food. Why is that? To provide our body with energy where it would become ill, it would decay. And essentially, all of our lives, in some sense, are spent, we spend enormous amounts of energy maintaining order, or maintaining things, preventing things from breaking down, repairing them. In, in the case of our body, our body, if we get ill, we all have experienced this, we, our body feels very tired. We spend enormous amounts of energy trying to fight off the illness, trying to restore order within our bodies. And, and that's how we do it. That's how humans act. We want to restore order. We need to spend energy. And now this gets to, our, to the main question. So what is a miracle? A miracle is a change from a disordered, chaotic state back to an ordered state, 
a creation of order, but that does not require energy. It's sort of, if we had to explain it in a natural way, it would be luck, like the dice that always rolls the same number. In our natural world, we have no explanation for it because we as humans, to restore order, we have to spend energy. And when order is created without spending energy, that's when we see something miraculous happen. In some circumstances, you can interpret it as a reversal of time, since order tends to disappear. If it's restored, it's like going back in time. You'll see that it's applicable in some examples uh, from the Bible. So let's get into them. So first one, uh, healing and life-giving. Uh, let's, let's talk about healing first. We've talked about this. The body is in order when everything is healthy. We fall ill, that's creation of disorder. So, uh, you, you know, tons of examples of Jesus uh, healing people, that's a restoration of order. The raising of Lazarus, our body decays and then it dies. We only spend, you know, a hundred years out of the millions of years that the earth has existed as, as ordered living beings. And a, a resurrection is uh, a creation of order, restoration of order. Same thing for, for a virgin birth, a creation of life. Life is a very ordered thing. This is creating order, um, you know, spontaneously. If we move next to the, uh, another classic example, the, the story about calming the storm. So the story is that there were winds causing a storm at the sea, and then Jesus willed uh, the, the, the wind to stop and, and the calm to be brought back. Uh, this is something that as humans, at least one day we could possibly do. Yeah, we, we build a huge fan or like some, some device to push back against the wind, consumes tons of energy, and we calm the wind. But here we have no, 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 none of that happens here. It's not Jesus blowing wind against the wind to stop it. He wills it to calm itself, to restore order by itself. Same, about, same thing when uh, he feeds the 5,000 people. Think about how we feed people, how we grow food. It requires a low entropy source of energy, the sun, that grows food. We, we spend so much effort to make the food actually grow and produce something edible. Uh, for Jesus, it's not necessary. The, the order is created miraculously. And finally, an example I'll give is, that sort of mirrors the example with the dice I gave at the beginning, is the miraculous catch of fish. So, if you th so the story here is that in one cast of a net, uh, fishermen got uh, you know a huge amount of the biggest fish just from from one cast of the net and if you think about it fish they sort of swim disorderly you know you cast it once at midday you don't accept to, expect to get a lot of fish but you might if you're lucky right and so then for all the fish to sort of coalesce in one spot at that precise time when the net was cast for a non-believer that would just be hey, hey you're just lucky right but unlike the dice you can't rig a fish to do what you want it to do. And so you lose that explanation. It's a bit too much of a luck uh, to, to, for that to occur. Uh, but it's a creation of order. And on top of the fact that Jesus sort of told them that you know, this was going to happen, uh, we can be quite convinced that it's, uh, it, it, is, it is indeed an act of divine intervention. And after all, this is what gets us thinking. Um, about how, how subtle the hand of God is sometimes. Because technically, a change from chaos to order is not, not impossible. Yeah, it's like I keep, keep rolling the same number with my dice forever until I die. But that is 
quite unlikely. And um, restoration of order, sometimes we, we might think of it as a coincidence. So this coincidence caused so many beautiful things in my life. And a non-believer would always reduce it just to luck. But for us, uh, it's important to know that that's why we keep faith. That's why we want to believe that uh, this, an act of God can happen to us and a miracle can occur in our lives. And so that is, that is my explanation of miracles. Thank you. I will never think of cleaning the kitchen the same way again. When, when I go to that kitchen, it's like, oh, the amount of energy that I have to introduce into that closed system to create a low entropy situation. <laughs> yeah, so thank you so much, Andre. And again, uh, I would encourage you, maybe some of these terms are new, uh, but that's, again, from a mathematician's point of view, fascinating. Um, so again, when you approach the Gospels and you look at these, these miracles, well, we see over and over and over again, here we have Jesus apparently with no effort reversing circumstances and doing things that we look at and we say, this is not possible. And we see this kind of thing over and over and over and over and over again in the Gospels. And it seems to be a demonstration of, again, who he is. That's the kind of uh, power and ability that he has. And I love the example of the storm, and he just wills it to become orderly, apparently with no, no introduction of, of energy or anything. Only, I found one part in the Gospels, and I was uh, uh, talking with Andre about this um, this week, Remember the story of when Jesus heals the, the woman with the issue, the hemorrhaging issue, and she's years and years, she's, she's ill with this very awkward problem in that time. She would be considered unclean all the time by their own, their own laws in the book of Leviticus. And so she has this issue of hemorrhaging, and she fights through the crowd, if you remember, and she touches the, just the piece of the garment uh, of of Jesus, there's a lot of music has been written about that particular story in the Gospels, and Jesus says, "Who touched me?" Do you remember the story? And there's a crowd around him. All he's all squashed by people, and he he says, "Who touched me? I felt power go out from me." So, well, that's about the only time you see a mention of some sort of energy that he's using, some sort of power that he's, he seems to at will do things that are inexplicable. And this is where we get the definition of a miracle. Now, again, for, the, for some of the skeptics who may be watching, either in the room or online or whatever, you know, and I've discovered in church there's a lot of secret skeptics. And they, they, you know, they, they can do the whole churchy thing. But deep on the inside, if you have a serious conversation with them, they have some, some big problems. Uh, with the Gospels and with miracles and all of that. Okay, I'm going to go on the skeptic side. So uh, the, 
the most widely accepted view, and you need to hear me carefully on this, okay? The most widely accepted view of the origin of the universe around the world. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's correct. I'm not saying it's incorrect. I'm just saying it's the wide, most widely accepted view of the origin of the universe is what? Yeah, it's the Big Bang. And we're not talking about a comedy TV show, right? So it's a Big Bang. So you, I know when you say that in, in churches, people get all nervous. They say, well, we don't you know this. Just tune out. They change the channel. But I just want you to entertain this for a minute. This is the leading, most respected, most accepted view of origins on the planet. Has been for quite a while. I guess, I guess probably since the 50s and 60s, uh, probably around there. This is the most widely accepted view now. And uh, believe me, they're... they're Many different views of origins out there. I've studied all of them. Um, but let's just go with that view. Just saying it's the most widely accepted view. Kids are learning it in the schools from a very young age. High school, academic circles, the deeper you go, that's the view. Okay, But let's just entertain the view for a second. This view that you have nothing... And then you have, and in your nothing state, you have a uh, a low uh, uh, low entropy, right? Andre, you've got a low entropy there. It's calm. There's order. There's nothing. And then all of a sudden, in this view, all of a sudden, you have a massive uh, a bang, if you will. It starts from a what they call a singularity and everything is is in there how it got there no one can say because there's nothing before there so it's it's really hard to get some people well, what happens before the big bang in this view there's a lot of speculation and you have this massive boom and you have all of this you know, radiation coming out and expansion coming out, and 14.8 billion years later, here we are. Now, in the bang, you have this uh, this very, very high entropy situation. It's chaos. It's boom. But then, it's order. How's it order? How does it become ordered? We're not sure, according to the view. But you have like amino acids, and you know, eventually you have DNA, which are highly, highly ordered structures, extremely impressive structures. How did they get that way? Honestly, there's a lot of questions about this from the the people who are trying to understand this view and trying to learn more and more about it. But this is the most widely accepted view of origins, and it implies a miracle. It's, folks, it's the most widely accepted view, and by implication, you have something that causes this. And you ask, well, what caused it? 
And the answer is, we have no clue. <laughs> we don't know what caused it. Folks, you have to understand, we, we, uh, we, the, the consensus accepts this view because of a few things. We can measure the expansion of the universe. We can see it expanding. We can measure it. And so they play the tape back, and they say, well, if it's expanding, it must have started from somewhere, so let's play the tape back, and what would we have? And so this correlates with the Big Bang. They can detect, and this is from the 50s and 60s, just by happenstance, they can detect what's called the uh, cosmic microwave background radiation from the bang itself, so they say. They can detect this. They can measure what they call redshift with, the, again, the expansion of the universe. And they say, well, that's exactly what would happen if we had this, this boom and this bang that started it all. This is the view, folks. But you're talking about energy and power, the likes of which we don't even understand if this is so. You're talking about being able to measure this nearly 15 billion years later? What kind of power would produce that? We don't know. <laughs> what kind of power would give you an amino acid out of that eventually? We don't know, folks. There are some who speculate and they say it's possible that maybe these are highly complex organisms that would have been in the su supposed primordial soup uh, that would have happened after the Big Bang, that maybe those highly complex things like amino acids actually arrived on our planet on the backs of aliens. That's, that's a view that's out there. It's out there because of the highly complex nature of these things. And it's difficult to explain at that stage of the game how you could get something so highly ordered and of such, uh, when it's highly ordered, it's low entropy. How can you get that without an explanation? So even the most widely accepted view, again, you can say you accept it, you can say you reject it. I'm just telling you it's the most widely accepted view. Even that implies a miracle some sort of intervention of limitless power. It implies this. We can try and skirt around it, but it implies it. There's a very famous uh, quote from um, a, uh, he's now uh, deceased. He was an, uh, an astronaut, a physicist, a cosmologist. Uh, he was a head scientist at NASA. Um, his name is Robert Jastrow. Very famous quote from him uh, from a book that he wrote in the late 70s. And he talks about this when, and this was at the height of when people said, well, you know, hold on here. It looks like the universe actually had a beginning because they're starting to discover, you know, things like the the galaxies are expanding, the universe is expanding. What's with this cosmic background radiation and so this again feeding into this view of the big bang just again i'm just telling you that's what that's the most widely accepted view i'm not telling you to accept it i'm not telling you to reject it i'm just telling you the view well even this man uh, uh, you know reflecting on this who is a professed agnostic 
in his day and uh, wrote a book called God and the Astronomers, coming from an agnostic position. And this is what he says, again, in the context of, hey, it looks like this all had a beginning. Is remember, before, before uh, this you know, now famous view of the Big Bang, the view of, of the universe is that it always existed. Never had a beginning, it always was. And so you have to understand the revolutionary nature of something like the Big Bang. Again, whether you accept it or you reject it is your thing. But this is what he says uh, in his book. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. You know, he's climbing this mountain to understand where it all came from. He is about to conquer the highest peak of the mountain, and he pulls himself over the final rock of the mountain, and he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries saying, you know, we told you so. We told you it had a beginning. It's the first verse of the Bible. So, you know, you may be not a big banger, okay? You may be opposed to it. But I'm just telling you, in terms of how radical that view was when it came out, you know, in the whatever 50s and 60s, the view before was that the universe always was. I think it was Carl Sagan who said, the cosmos is all that ever was and is and ever will be. Sounds like God. Well... Again, Jastro and others say, well, no, it looks like it all had a beginning. By golly, maybe the theologians were right after all. Oh, boy. You know, so, and this is an agnostic, folks. He's the, and you should, you should read his work. Some of it is, in a sense, in a weird way, prophetic. Some of the stuff that, that he says, uh, Jastro, you know, this is an agnostic. He says this, he says, it is now clear that astronomical evidence supports the perspective of Holy Scripture about the beginning of the world. Huh? The details differ, but the essential elements of the astro astronomical explanation and that of the Holy Scripture in the book of Genesis are the same. Again, coming from an agnostic position and thinking about the Big Bang in his view. And I know many people in churches would say, oh, no, 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 the Bible doesn't support the Big Bang. Again, put yourself in his mind. And he says, the chain begins with man who rose suddenly and instantaneously at a specific moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Agnostic astronomer. Fascinating. So, you know, we may look at miracles today in our modern mind, and we may look at the Christmas story and look at miracles and all that and have a kind of a scoffing, mocking attitude, we should be careful. Because again, the most popular view of origins does indeed imply some sort of incredible power and intervention looks suspiciously like our definition of a miracle. When you look at the New Testament, I think that the argument can be made on three different fronts that we have a, a good reason
to believe that these things happen. And number one is the sheer quantity of them. Now, I'm going to have a little bit of fun with you and test your knowledge on this. Uh, Just when you come to the Christmas story, which is in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, you have, well, you tell me, you've got some miracles going on there and some supernatural stuff going on there. Tell me some of it. The virgin birth being the sort of pinnacle of it. And remember, in the virgin birth, this doesn't occur anywhere else in the scripture. Nowhere. This is the only time you have this virgin birth. This woman becomes pregnant, and there's no male involved. So yeah, that would be one for sure. But there's a host of others in the Christmas story. Let's test your knowledge. Yeah, you've got the star of the so-called star of Bethlehem, which... I mean, this is a nightmare for an astronomer to to, to try and understand what this star was. I mean, you know, I've heard these explanations of the three planets and all this that coincide and all of that. Folks, it does not move correctly by the rules and the laws of astronomy. It does not move that way. It does all kinds of weird things. I mean, it's above a house at one point. Oh, yeah, here's the house we need to go to. By a star? You ever you ever say, oh, the star is above my house now? <laughs> I mean, it does not do normal things. This, you know, if you study astronomy, you would look at it and you would say, this is not a natural thing. This is a supernatural thing. Good. Others? <laughs> the alien beings who landed and spoke to the shepherds. Yeah, so the angels, right? You have a... A great multitude, a great company of the heavenly host in Luke's gospel, right? And they say, glory to God and the highest of peace on earth to all who good. You know, it's very beautifully written. Well, that's a, that's a, a great company, a plethora strata in the Greek. It could be the tens of thousands of them that appeared just to these angels out in the hills of Bethlehem. Definitely something uh, supernatural there. Keep going. There's many more. Okay, that's an interesting one. Yeah, you have you have the you have John the Baptist is not born yet. He's a, a, a sort of distant relative of Jesus, and uh, there's a meeting of the mothers. John the Baptist's mother, uh, whose name is um, Elizabeth, good, and uh, Jesus's mother, whose name is Mary, good, and the baby. Uh, uh, in in uh, 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 Elizabeth's womb, it says, le- w- was filled with the Holy Spirit and leapt for joy. Ooh, okay, interesting view there. But there's easier ones than that. Yeah, you've got several instances where angels are appearing and communicating with people. There's a very well-known angel from the Old Testament that appears a couple of times. Gabriel, if you remember our study on the book of Daniel, uh, this, is, uh, this is supernatural. There's others. The man with the shriveled hand, okay, yeah, but that's, that's after. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about just the Christmas story, just around Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. That's after. We'll get there in a moment. That's good, though. 
Well, his birth in Bethlehem. I'll give the skeptic. Uh, I'll give the skeptic a, a heads a, a checkbox on that one because you know, you're saying of fulfilling prophecy, right? Well, the skeptic could say hogwash. So let's give the skeptic that just for fun. I like to give them the, the something. But there's other easier ones. You've already said it. Who, who's uh, John the Baptist's parents? Elizabeth and Zechariah. What, tell me about the, his parents. Yeah, well, why, why did Zechariah become, he couldn't speak? He didn't believe what? Okay, so an angel told him, your, your wife's going to get pregnant. Uh, uh, how old are Elizabeth and Zechariah? This is a senior couple. She got no kids. So he gets, he gets chosen uh, by lot to go into the temple and in fulfillment of a certain custom, maybe once in their life, the priest would have the opportunity to actually go where he went and he's, he's there doing his thing, and an angel appears before him and says, uh, you're going to have a son. He's skeptical about it, doesn't believe it. And so the angel says, well, I'm going to take away your voice. Preacher, a priest, take away your voice. So he's effectively saying, I'm shutting your mouth because of your disbelief. And sure enough, they become pregnant. Now, this is a sort of miraculously assisted procreation act, right? Like this is a senior couple, so that's good. I mean, when you start to count them, all right, you've got an angel appearing to Zechariah. You've got Zechariah made not to speak in disbelief. You've got the angel appearing to Mary. You've got Zechariah healed of his inability to speak when his child is born. You've got angels appearing to the shepherds. You've got Elizabeth becomes pregnant, seemingly by the assistance of God. Mary becomes pregnant completely supernaturally. There's no man involved. An angel appears to Joseph before Jesus is born. You've got to deal with the star of Bethlehem. God warns the wise men in a dream. An angel appears to Joseph after the birth of Jesus. An angel appears to Joseph after the death of Herod the Great. And God warns Joseph in a dream about uh, uh, Archelaus, who's now in power uh, after Herod the Great dies. <laughs> Folks, that's just, the, that's just the Christmas story. So I did a little research in the Gospels alone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've got, by a conservative count, and looking at, you know, not taking a story that's in Matthew and in Luke, the same story and calling it two, you call that one. By a conservative count, I counted 71. 71 miracles, things of clearly a supernatural uh, uh, flavor. That's just the Gospels, folks. That's just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 71. Then you've got to deal with another book, in the, in the New Testament that's filled, filled, filled with similar instances of the miraculous and the supernatural. It starts with A, the book of Acts. You've got to deal with that one. 
I read the book of Acts many, many times and did a, my own survey and my own count. I think I stopped at 56 in the book of Acts. 56. Folks, the sheer quantity of these things, the sheer quantity makes you look and scratch your head and say, my goodness, you know, are they all wrong? All of them? Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult to start to say, no, this didn't really, this one didn't really happen. This one, no, now this one didn't. Oh, now this one. And you're going to get like 120, 130 little narratives of these miracles that you've got to find a way to dismiss. Good luck. The other problem with miracles, if you're going to take, again, a skeptical position, is that they're quite diverse. They're all over the place in the Gospels alone. An example was, was cited before. You've got a guy with a, with a shriveled hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And Jesus effortlessly, in front of everybody, making this guy almost an object lesson, heals this guy right in front of everybody, like with no effort. There's, again, no energy introduced into the system. He takes a high entropy situation, brings it into low entropy with no effort. What is that? And you see all kinds of things like this. You see Jesus showing power over weather. You see Jesus showing power over the, the spiritual realm. You get a lot of instances in the Gospels of Jesus dealing with the demonic, the dark side of the spiritual world, if you will. Seems to do it with absolutely no effort. He's dealing with weather. He's dealing with the spiritual world. He's raising, he's raising the dead back to life. On several occasions, he does this. There seems to be nothing beyond his scope and beyond his ability, it's quite a diverse bandwidth that we see Jesus involved with, many different kinds of circumstances, quite, quite diverse. So you have to deal with all of that diversity. And you have to say, well, you know, in this situation, maybe the people were hallucinating, maybe they were exaggerating. Well, no, in that situation over here, no, I couldn't. And all of a sudden, you run into so many problems, you have to do such gymnastics to try and say, well, it didn't really happen, it didn't happen this way. Oh, the wind was blowing a certain direction. And after a while, you just scratch your head and you say, this is a fruitless task to try and, to try and combat these miracles in terms of their appearance, their diversity, their frequency, and finally, the commentary on these things. Folks, there are, there are writings in the ancient world where you know things are spoken of miraculously. This is not unique to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. You see this kind of thing in the ancient world. It's not unique to them. But what is unique to them is the quantity the diversity, but also the commentary about them. So you see that these things are referred to after they happen by other people. And it, they don't just happen and disappear, probably with the exception, ironically, of the virgin birth. Virgin birth happens, and nobody talks about it afterward. It's one of the strange things about the virgin birth. But Jesus clearly develops a reputation 
as some sort of miracle worker, and we see commentary about this. We see commentary inside the New Testament about this. We see commentary outside the New Testament about this. He develops this reputation. Why does he develop this reputation? What does he do to develop this reputation? And you see people talking about what Jesus did as soon as he does it and from a totally different angle. One of my favorite uh, examples of this is in the Easter story. And you see when Jesus is put on trial, uh, he is, he, there are people who come up with these, these charges against him. But no, nobody's going to deny that Jesus went to a trial and that Jesus was crucified. Nobody's going to deny that today. Well, if you look at that trial, you will see that one of the things that they say about Jesus is they say, look, this guy, he said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. This is magic. This is sorcery. And so we want him, we want him uh, uh, indicted uh, because this is wrong. The law of Moses says this is wrong. He's involved in sorcery. He's involved in magic. He's making these claims of destroying the temple. So, ha, we've got him there. Well, folks, you've got that in Matthew. You've got that in Mark. Uh, it, you have these people inventing this, this charge against Jesus. This is a fascinating example because this is a misquote of something that Jesus says in the Gospels. He doesn't say it in Matthew, doesn't say it in Mark. He says it in John. In John chapter 2, it's recorded that Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the author there says he was referring to his own body, speaking of his own death to come and his own resurrection to come. And here you fast forward to the trial and Matthew and Luke, they've got these people coming up with this trumped up charge. So what are you going to say as a skeptic? You're going to say, oh, well, uh, that's an invention. <laughs> they in, the, whoever wrote that down invented it. Yeah, they invented it, and they were smart enough to misquote what was written in John. Remember, folks, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, these are written entirely independently of one another. Even the skeptics will agree to that. They come from totally different angles, written independently of each other. Some of them borrow from the same sources, but it's not like these four guys sat down in a room and said, okay, you write this and I'll write this, and you write this, and we'll fool the whole world. <laughs> Folks, like, you have to come up with explanations about this, and I just, uh, good luck, because you're, you've got about as much chance at finding a way around it as rolling the dice six, you know, 15 times in a row, uh, like the example that Andre gave. Here's what I'd recommend to you. You can do one of two things. You can accept the whole thing, or you can throw the whole thing out. At the end of the day, those are going to be your only two options. Either you say, look, this Bible is a, is a bunch of gibberish. It's a mishmash of all these different things. So, you know, I basically categor categorically reject the whole thing. And that's a position that people can take. Or people can take a position of, you know what, I believe it. Because I'm sick and tired of trying to find a way to explain it all away. And it keeps coming back. It is, it's kind of haunting me, this whole thing of miracles. And here you've got, again, the leading view worldwide, folks, is implying that a miracle happened. And here we sit in our chairs, supposedly 14.8 billion years later. Do you know how many cells are in your body working right now? 30 trillion. There's 
30 trillion little, tiny little factories of high order, extremely low entropy, highly ordered machines, 30 trillion of them working in your body right now. That, folks, alone might be enough to convince you there is something magnificent, something incredibly powerful, something incredibly intelligent to have brought this all about. And I, it leaves me with no other option to say, I've got no problem understanding and believing miracles because I've got 30 trillion of them working inside me right now. And I don't even have to know what they do. All I have to do is feed them, hopefully good food, in a clean kitchen. <laughs> right? That's all I got to do. And they do their job. They do their job for 70, 80, 90 years. Folks, we can't even build a bridge that lasts that long. Unless its name is Victoria, which is ugly as all get out, but works. Right? Just think about it. I mean, it's not all that far-fetched after all, folks. And I would obviously encourage you to take the position of faith. And this Christmas season, to take the position of faith. Musicians, you can come up and you can play at your, at your leisure here. Just to finish with, a, with a, a, a quote from the Christmas story. And you have uh, uh, Mary uh, visited uh, by the angel. And uh, this is from Luke chapter 1. And uh, in verses uh, 35, 36, 37, and so on. And she, too, wants to know how this is going to take place. You know, the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. And these two women were given a word from God, a specific word. You're going to have a child, a very special child, and the circumstances of what would happen. No word from God will ever fail. In some translations, nothing is impossible for God. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we come to you with our circumstances. We come to you with our difficult uh, hurdles to jump over in life, with our mountains to climb, with our problems that seem unsolvable. And we come to that one who was born 2,000 years ago, who we worship today, we come to Jesus with it all. The one who can effortlessly change it, almost as if he's turning back time. The one who can speak to the wind and the waves. The one who can bring the dead body back to life. The one who can multiply food out of nothing, it seems. The one who can turn water into wine the one who can walk upon the waves, 
the one who was risen from the dead. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would show your power in our lives and that you would increase our faith in you this Christmas season. We ask for your blessing upon each family, upon each household. May your presence be rich in the coming days as we meditate upon you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you today. Any guests in the room, I'll be at the front. Would love to meet you before you go. Remember to pick up your kids in screen 11. We'll see you next week, Christmas Eve, 10.30 a.m. as usual right here. God bless you, everyone. Your love.